My guest today is Professor Joseph Ledoux. Joseph Ledoux is Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology at New York University and is the director of the Emotional Brain Institute, a joint initiative between New York University and New York State. His research focuses on the brain mechanisms of memory and emotions and his two books relevant to this discussion are The Emotional Brain, The Mysterious Underpinnings of Emotional Life, and synoptic self, how our brains become who we are. Professor Joseph Ledoux is with me on the phone from New York. Uh, Professor Joseph Ledoux, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thanks for having me. Before we begin our discussion uh, on the topic of brain mechanisms of memory and emotions, uh, please tell us about yourself, about your education and about your career. Well, I grew up in Louisiana uh, in the grew up in the 1950s and 60s. I uh, uh, went to school in Louisiana where I studied business administration um, and got a, all the way through a master's in business administration when I happened to take a course in psychology and found out about the brain and psychology and fell in love with that field, so I switched fields. And at that point, entered a PhD program um, that allowed me to begin to study psychology from the point of view of the brain. And uh, so I got a PhD in in that topic, uh, and that's what I've studied ever since. Uh, let us uh, start uh, with a brief overview of the origin of uh, research on emotions. Uh, please give us an overview uh, of uh, the origin of research on emotions and uh, do tell us uh, that uh, how did you get interested in studying the brain mechanisms of emotions? Well, it was uh, part of my PhD research. I was studying a very interesting group of patients called split brain patients. Uh, these are people in whom the two halves of the brain have been separated so that information can no longer flow between their two sides. The reason this is done is to prevent epileptic uh, seizures from passing from one side of the brain to the other where they build up speed, so to speak, and, and uh, lead to various serious convulsions and so forth. So this was a way to help um, uh, you know, minimize the effects of seizures in the brain. Uh, and it was being done at a university in New England, um, and I was studying, doing my research on Long Island, and, but my professor, my, my mentor, was a specialist in this area, and he had contacts with the people who were doing the surgery. So we studied these patients, and one of the things I got interested in was um, the question of how one side of the brain that speaks, the, the left side of the brain, how that side deals with emotional responses created in the other side of the brain. Mm -hmm. So the left hemisphere doesn't know anything about what has been put, <clears throat> excuse me, what has been put into the right hemisphere, and yet the right hemisphere will have an emotional response to that stimulus, and then we'd ask the left hemisphere how it felt about that. Even though it didn't know what it was, it could tell us something about the emotional um, implications of, of what was going on in the other side of the brain. So that got me interested in the question of how the brain um, processes emotional stimuli. And, um, the, and the possibility that emotional stimuli, stimuli may trigger unconscious emotional responses in us that we then consciously have to come to terms with later. And so that, you know, that pretty much set me on a path towards studying that. And then I, at the time, I, I uh, realized that there were no techniques available for adequately studying the human brain in, in any 
way. So I, I decided I would turn to animal studies, in particular studies of rats, to try and get it with these basic mechanisms by which the brain, for example, detects and responds to danger uh, that would allow me to at least have some understanding of what the brain is doing when it's encountering uh, a threatening stimulus. Do we have a universally accepted definition of emotion? Uh, what is an emotion and how does it differ from other psychological states? So it's been said that there uh, are as many theories of emotion as there are emotion theorists and maybe even more because some people have two or three theories. So no, there's no real accepted definition. Uh, my personal definition is that an emotion is a conscious experience that happens when a survival circuit of the brain has been activated. Now that doesn't cover everything that we, um, that we would want to include under the topic of emotion, uh, but it covers a lot of the more basic kinds of processes. For example, uh, the survival circuits include circuits that detect danger, uh, that identify sources of nutrients, um, that identify liquids that we need or uh, that regulate our body temperature and that are involved in reproduction. Now, these five things are things that every organism has to satisfy in order to stay alive. Um, this is not just true of the human brain. So the human brain has to detect danger, um, um, acquire nutrients and energy sources, um, uh, balance the fluids in the body, thermoregulate and reproduce for the individual and species to survive. But this is also true of every organism all the way down to single-cell organisms, like a bacterial cell living in your gut has to do all of those things as well. So these are not emotional functions per se. They are functions that are essential to uh, life itself, and they're as old as life on Earth itself. Um, but when we, when we put these functions into a brain that can be conscious of its own activities, then we have an emotional uh, experience. So, for example, every organism detects danger, but only organisms that can be aware that their brain is detecting danger uh, can have the feeling of fear. You pose an interesting question in one of your recent publications uh, that uh, whether emotions are things that exist in nature or emotions are inventions of the human mind. Uh, please talk to us about this statement. Sure. So if we go back to this idea about the, um, the survival functions, um, those are not emotional functions. The emotion doesn't come until the mind interprets cognitively what's going on with these survival functions. So yes, I would say that, uh, for example, fear does not live in the brain in a prepackaged way that we've inherited from monkeys and uh, um, other animals before that, um, you know, that, that we don't we haven't inherited emotions. What we've inherited are these survival circuits. And emotion is what happens in the human brain when it cognitively uh, interprets and labels and uses all of the, the capacities that the human brain has to understand that one of these survival circuits is active and helps us, by, by being conscious of that, we can uh, adapt in a, a more effective way. Now, um, my definition of emotion is often... Uh, humanistic, that is, it's, it's, it's something that we can only really verify in the human brain because we don't know anything about the conscious experiences of other animals, and we have no way of actually uh, testing and studying conscious experiences in other animals. Uh, so 
I'm not saying other animals don't have these experiences, but I am saying that uh, we can learn a lot by studying unconscious aspects of these processes in other animals and the conscious aspects in humans. There are a number of emotions uh, such as fear, anger, happiness, sadness, surprise, uh, and so on. Uh, and perhaps the most widely studied emotion is the emotion of fear that you mentioned a few minutes ago. And there is a view that this emotion is relevant to emotion of survival. And there is a view that this emotion is hardwired in our brains. What is your take on this, that an emotion like fear is hardwired in our brains? Yes, I don't think that's true. I mean, I used to talk that way, and, and I, but I think it's wrong. I'm sort of um, repenting on, on my past sins here. That I don't think that that's the way it really works. Um, the, the fear is, is something that happens. Fear is what happens when you become consciously aware that an unconscious brain system has detected and responded to danger. Um, so, yes, I wouldn't say that uh, fear lives in our brain in a prepackaged, inherited way, that it's something that, that we add to, uh, uh, to we, that we interpret cognitively and assemble in our minds. Why fear is the emotion uh, that is uh, being studied widely? Uh, is there a view that once we understand fear, uh, we will understand other emotions as well? well? Let me answer the second question first. I think that there are probably some general uh, principles that um, that we at least should that that we should uh, try to learn from the things that are easier to study and at least see if they might apply to other uh, emotions. But fear, in general, has been thought of as a very easy emotion to study. Um, and, but I think that it, we've wrongly assumed that what we were studying was fear. What we've been studying when we study these so-called easy uh, aspects of fear, are, uh, we're not studying the fear itself. What we're studying is the ability of the brain to detect and respond to danger. And that can occur quite independent of any fearful experience. For example, um, there are lots of uh, behavioral tasks that you can use to study um, detection of danger in, in animals. Uh, something as simple as Pavlovian conditioning. So if uh, a rat is uh, uh, looking for food and it, gets, it finds something and it gets sick from eating that food, then uh, it will avoid eating that food in the future because it's been conditioned to it. Uh, there are ways to study that in the laboratory or if a, a rat or any other animal is um, um, out foraging for food and uh, it encounters a predator and the predator uh, grabs it but the rat is fortunate enough to escape uh, but is wounded in the process, it will store in its brain all sorts of information uh, relevant to that. So maybe the sound that the, the predator made before it attacked it or the crackling of the leaves as, as the towards the, the rat, all of that will be stored in the brain uh, and because it was paired with this sort of um, uh, the wound that, that was made during the attack. So uh, these are very kind of uh, important survival functions um, <clears throat> that are built into the brain and um, the, the capacity to learn these things is built into the brain, but we attach new stimuli to them. And so these, are, uh, these have often been so-called fear tasks. I don't think that's what they are, actually, but that's what we've called them for a long time. And uh, because they're so important to survival, it's very easy to study them because every animal has to have this kind of capacity.
experiences this and, and expresses this kind of response. Um, and at the same time, um, it, it's uh, it, because it's so important for survival, uh, it, it's something that has to be learned in a single exposure. So an animal doesn't have the opportunity to, often doesn't have the opportunity to practice over and over again until it gets this right. It has to learn in a single trial what's dangerous and what's, uh, what's safe. And failure to do that uh, can be deadly. So that's why this kind of learning is, is so easily studied, because it's so important to, uh, to life itself. In our brains, uh, there are survival circuits. Uh, you uh, briefly touched upon these a few moments ago. These survival circuits include uh, circuits involved in defense, uh, maintenance of energy, fluid balance, thermoregulation and reproduction. Uh, tell us about these survival circuits. Are these survival circuits fixed in our brains or as new connections in our brains are formed, these survival circuits also change? So it's interesting that these circuits are highly conserved throughout mammals. So um, whether we're talking about you know rats, dogs, cats, cows, you know, monkeys, chimpanzees, humans, uh, these circuits are very, very similarly organized. Um, if you take something like uh, sexual behavior or uh, feeding behavior that's highly dependent on certain hormones in the body, um, those hormones and the circuits that they act on, again, are highly conserved uh, across all, all uh, mammalian species and even into other vertebrate species to some extent. So... Um, that's why these things can be studied, uh, these survival circuits can be studied so easily across species. Now, when you go to, to non-vertebrate animals, in other words, the invertebrates like uh, flies and uh, bugs and worms and uh, snails and so forth, they don't have the kind of brain we have, so they don't have the exact same survival circuits, but they have their own survival circuits for the same functions. So these functions are highly conserved, uh, and in fact, the reason we have these circuits that we have is because we inherited this function uh, through the process of the vertebrate brain evolving from the invertebrate brain, not because the same circuits evolved, but through a chain of events, the circuits were modified over uh, the course of the evolution of the vertebrate brain, and then once it hit the vertebrate brain, it's been highly conserved throughout. Now, the, as I said before, these functions are also present in single-cell organisms which have no nervous system uh, it, because they are a self-contained unit, just one cell. Uh, a nervous system is a, a means for multiple cells to communicate with one another, uh, cells within the nervous system and cells of the nervous system communicating with cells throughout the rest of the body. Um, so nervous systems uh, are not necessary for these survival functions, but nervous systems allow these survival functions to be much more complicated. And the more complex the nervous system, the more complex the survival function. So even though we see a continuous flow of this survival function that's been maintained throughout evolution, its actual expression in a given organism <clears throat> uh, can vary quite a bit. But even though it varies, the, the basic, within the mammalian brain, the basic structures are there can become more complex in a human brain than in a rat brain, but the basic structure is there. Similar survival functions uh, exist in unicell organisms. Uh, bacteria 
have the capacity to retract from harmful chemicals and to accept chemicals that have nutritional value. How does this relate to a survival network in multicell organisms and in complex systems such as human brain? So, what are the differences and what are the commonalities? Well, the commonality is that <clears throat> that those functions allow the single-cell organism and the complex organism to survive uh, because these are things that, that just, by the nature of life, these are things that an organism, a living organism, has to do to survive. So, in a way, it's not at all surprising that people and bacterial cells both have to, you know, incorporate food, uh, nutrients and energy sources, balance fluids, thermoregulate, reproduce, and so forth, because that's just what it, that's just what required uh, for life, no matter how simple or complex you are. Uh, you suggest in your publications that these survival circuits do not align well with human basic emotions. Uh, talk to us about this statement. As a psychologist, we become interested in, in um, topics because uh, they're relevant to our experience as, as a person. So I got interested in, in fear and emotions because I, I thought that was an interesting thing uh, that we needed to understand about people and, uh, and, and the human brain, and it wasn't being studied that much at the time. Um, um, and, and the research that I described earlier about split-brain patients was what kind of stimulated my interest in that. But um, when we do this, what we're doing is we're starting from the, our conscious experience. So we have these experiences of fear and anger and love and uh, sadness and, and so forth. Um, and what we're now asking is, how does that come out of the brain? Now, the only way we study those things scientifically uh, is by seeing the responses that come out of the brain. So, for example, basic emotions are often associated with certain facial expressions. Now, I think the mistake we make is by saying that the, because the facial expression of fear is often occurring at the same time that the person says they're feeling afraid, that we assume that those are coming out of a single spot in the brain. But the fact is that there are plenty instances where those two things do not go together. Uh, for example, we can show a human a picture of uh, something threatening um, and, and do that presentation subliminally so the person does not know that there's a stimulus present at all. And if it's a threatening stimulus, that stimulus will go into their brain and it will lead to um, a response. For example, the heart will beat a little faster, the palms will begin to sweat and so forth, uh, even though the person is not feeling fear. So the feeling of fear is not required for these bodily responses to be expressed. The feeling of fear is something that happens in parallel with the control of these bodily responses. So... When, when we use our conscious experience of fear to go looking for the fear system in the brain and we use these innate responses as an indicator that we found the fear system, we've confused two things. One is the survival circuit that controls these innate responses and the other is the conscious experience. Both of those occur to the same stimulus. The threat is, is causing both of those responses, the conscious experience and the innate response. But it's uh, having that impact by way of different uh, 
I just want to come back to this question again uh, that uh, by just focusing on these circuits and by just focusing on fear can we understand other emotions uh, such as sadness happiness no mm-hmm. uh, i think that uh, as i sort of hinted at before that the, those other there may be principles that come out of the study of, of these survival circuits for threat and defense and so forth um but i think each emotion is going to have to be studied uh, on its own because a lot of emotions don't necessarily a lot of things we call emotions don't necessarily have survival circuits associated with them for example empathy or uh, jealousy and, and so forth so we might at some point want to rethink how we classify things as emotions and whether we should be calling whether we should put in the same grouping under this topic of emotion these things tied to survival circuits and these things tied to um, um, other kinds of processes where there's no survival circuit involved at all now it is hard to study that uh, do animals have emotions uh, and you mentioned this few minutes ago however do animal brains have similar circuits that uh, perhaps we can study uh, do animals uh, have uh, similar survival networks absolutely yes those are so those are highly conserved throughout all um, mammalian species and on into the vertebrates as well one of the major contributions of your research is that uh, your research shows that how the outside world comes into a region of brain that we call amygdala and how in amygdala uh, this information coming from outside world activates all of the fear responses and your study shows this through a behavioral paradigm uh, that is known as fear conditioning so i have a number of questions uh, what is fear conditioning and how by using fear conditioning uh, you have studied what happens in amygdala okay so uh, the first point is that we no longer call it fear conditioning because that is led to the conclusion that you know we're we're studying fear and i think that's the wrong conclusion what we're studying is the uh, detection and response to danger um by the brain and so we now call it threat conditioning uh to kind of keep that separate fear as i said earlier is the conscious experience that we know a human has when it encounters danger uh but that's controlled by a different system in the brain than the system that automatically detects and responds to danger unconsciously now i i'm not saying that that other animals don't have any feelings of fear i don't i really don't know but uh it's for me it's not a good scientific question as to whether they do or not it's fine to speculate that they do or don't uh and i you know like most people i think my cat uh, is happy when i pet him and he purrs and so forth and uh unhappy if if he injures himself or feels um something but uh scientifically i can't really study that and by all of the information i've been telling you the um i don't think that that behavior is a good clue as to what's actually going on uh in the brain for example uh we know that um you know you, you might say that an animal that is um um that that is eating something is eating because it's hungry but we know that people eat all the time not because of hunger but because of you know it's time to eat maybe it's noon or it's dinner time or whatever so you eat um and also that you can be quite full uh and still eat 
dessert or other things, uh, so it's not necessarily all about hunger. This is true of animals as well. Rats will eat uh, uh, things that are, are sweetened uh, with, with non-nutritive um, substances like you know, artificial sweeteners that have no caloric, uh, make no caloric contribution to their energy resources and so forth, but they eat it for the taste. Now, whether they're pleased or happy when they do that, we don't know. They, but we know that they, uh, they have a taste system that allows them to um, use that taste, um, and um, uh, that taste motivates them to, uh, to, to, to eat that thing. But whether they're hungry or not is a, a different question. Uh, I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just saying that scientifically we, we can't study hunger and fear and love and other things in animals. Uh, I assume they have some kind of experience that would have some relation to what we call fear and love and hunger. Um, but scientifically, it's very difficult to pin that down. So we don't, we don't really call it fear conditioning anymore. We call it threat conditioning because we want to understand how the, the threat goes into the brain and produces the responses. Um, and we want to avoid making the attribution that, that the rat is feeling fear since we can't scientifically uh, measure and pinpoint that. So the way this works in the laboratory is uh, uh, a rat or a mouse would be given a tone. For example, um, the rat would hear a, a one kilohertz sound like the beep. And then at the end of maybe a two-second presentation of that sound, that would receive a mild uh, uh, electric foot shock. And uh, you only have to pair the tone and the shock one time, and it doesn't have to be particularly strong. Uh, and the, the rat will then have a lifelong response to that tone. So whenever that tone appears again in the, in the life of the rat, the rat will freeze, his blood pressure will go up, his heart will race, and so forth. Uh, and what the, the reason we study this is because these kinds of responses are conditioned in us all the time. And some people have runaway uh, responses like this where they can't control them. They're, condi they're overly sensitive to these kinds of conditioning processes. They um, uh, are debilitated by threats that are constantly being um, uh, either triggered in their brain or they're generalizing from past threats that they've learned about and those are generalizing to widely to other kinds of stimuli in their lives. Uh, so we want to really figure out how these threats are processed in the brain and studies of the rat are very useful in that. So the, the conditioning, um, as I said, only has to occur with one single exposure to the tone and shock. Um, because, as I mentioned earlier, this is a very important kind of, of uh, thing that an animal has to learn. It's not the kind of thing you can practice over and over again. If the animal escapes from danger once, it better learn as much about it as possible in that single exposure. And the reason it's so persistent, this is, you know, uh, I guess about an evolutionary story. I, don't, I can't prove this, but um, it, it seems that it may be this persistent because um, the, if things, are, things that are dangerous today are likely to be dangerous tomorrow, so if you, uh, if you don't retain the memory, you might have to relearn it again in the future, and that wouldn't be very efficient, but also may lead to your death. So this kind of learning is very effective, very efficient. And the way we study it is we condition the rat, then we give the rat the tone and measure things like the freezing response that the rat will exhibit or uh, heart rate changes or blood pressure changes or the release of hormones into the bloodstream and so forth. And these are all good indicators that the rat has detected and responded uh, to the threat. Um, and then we can then try to follow
follow the flow of that stimulus, the tone, through the brain as it goes from the sensory system, for example, the auditory system in this case, goes into the ear, and the tone goes into the ear. It's then transmitted through the brain up towards the neocortex, where the auditory cortex is, and that's where we have our conscious auditory perceptions. But along the way, the stimulus also uh, takes a, um, uh, a turn and leaves the main pathway and goes directly into the amygdala. And through that projection from the auditory system into the amygdala, the sound can now turn on this defensive response. So the amygdala has neurons that have learned about the, the tone and the shock. So when the tone goes there, those neurons become active, and they turn on other cells that then express the responses of freezing behavior, blood pressure, and uh, stress hormones, and so forth that are all uh, occurring in response to the tone. So by mapping this very simple response from point to point in the brain, we can figure out exactly what the brain uh, does when it encounters a threat. And through studies uh, with my collaborator Elizabeth Phelps at NYU, we've been able to show the exact same circuits are involved in the human brain, not in the same level of detail as we can study in rats, but um, at least at the level of we know that the sensory system is involved, the auditory system, we know that the amygdala is involved, and so forth. But in the rat, we can not only know that the amygdala is involved, but we can separately identify five or six different parts of the amygdala that each make different contributions. We can study the cells and the synapses. And by studying those cells and synapses and the way they're affected by drugs and, and uh, so forth, um, we can begin to understand why drugs work or why they might, may not work quite so well as we would like them to work uh, in relieving fear and anxiety in humans because the circuits involved are identical or more or less identical. They're, they're very similar in the rat brain and the human brain. Uh, please tell us about your research on memory reconsolidation. Consolidation is a process by which memories become vulnerable when they're remembered, essentially. So if, um, <clears throat> so if you are, um, let's say you, you're, you've witnessed a crime on the streets of Dublin, and the uh, police take a report on the day of that crime. And then sometime later when the, course go, court, when the uh, case goes to court, you're asked to testify about the crime. And you go in and you tell the jury exactly what um, um, what you saw or believe you saw on the day of the crime. Um, and it turns out that it varies considerably from the police report. But in the meantime, what you've done is read about the uh, the crime in the newspaper or you know surfed the net and found out something about the crime. And in the process of doing that, you've retrieved the original memory of the crime. And that, that retrieval process destabilizes the memory. And in the process of destabilization, the new information is incorporated into the memory and treated as if it was part of the original memory. It's very hard for us to distinguish sometimes what was part of the original learning and what got swept up at a later retrieval point. Now, you might say this is a kind of devious thing. Why would the brain... Uh, uh, be so uh, bad at this sort of thing. Well, actually, the purpose of all this is not to give you trouble, but to help you update memory. So um, after our conversation today, we'll have met for the first time um, by phone, but you know, maybe someday I'll be in Dublin and we'll meet each other in person, uh, and uh, you may find out things about me in the meantime. 
So every time you think about me or every time you um, talk to me, you'll learn new information. And each of those events gets incorporated into your memory of who I am and, and what I'm about. Uh, so it's a useful thing to change and update memories, but sometimes uh, it can be problematic. And so in, in the process of studying this, we, we found that we could block this reconsolidation process. And if we did that, the memories were no longer present. So, for example, in the rat, the rat uh, encounters a, a tone and it gets a shock, as I described earlier. And then if we give the rat the tone by itself, and right after that tone, this, is, this can be like a day later or two days or a week later, uh, after the learning process or even longer. Uh, but right after the rat hears the tone on this retrieval day, we now block protein synthesis in the amygdala of the rat's brain. Uh, this will prevent the updating of the memory, the, and we call this the reconsolidation of the memory. Mm -hmm. And so in the future, when the rat hears that tone, he's no longer going to respond to it, no longer going to freeze, his blood pressure is no longer going to go up. So what's happened there is by preventing the reconsolidation, we've prevented the, the, the stimulus from serving as a threat in the future. So this is potentially a very important uh, tool for treating people who have, for example, traumatic uh, problems, problems with traumatic experiences. So they could be brought into the laboratory, their memories about the experience could be retrieved, uh, some drug or other procedure could be used to prevent the, and the, the uh, stimulus would then be less traumatic for the person later. Now, there are a lot of uh, ethical questions about this. There are also some practical questions about finding the right drugs that, that you can use because you can't go injecting protein synthesis inhibitors into the brains of people. Uh, it's, not, it's not a safe um, uh, and approved um, kind of thing to do. Um, there are other drugs that have been tried. They, some have worked pretty good in rats, but uh, they haven't panned out so well in humans. So it's... Um, you know, it, the problem may be that uh, the human memories are, are too complex to work this way. Uh, they have, you know, human memories are stored in so many different ways, through language, through cognitive memory, through implicit or unconscious memories, and, and on and on, that it, that it may not be as easy to disrupt these memories in uh, the human brain as it is in, in the rat brain. Or it may be that we just haven't found a drug that's going to uh, do the trick uh, quite as well in the human brain yet. So the work is ongoing. We don't have a magic bullet at this point. And um, uh, every time I you know, give an interview about this topic, a lot of people call and ask me to erase their memories, which I, I can't do because, first of all, it would be unethical and, and illegal for me to uh, uh, do that. I'm not a therapist or a doctor or anything. Uh, but also, we just we don't have the tools at this point to really do this in the human brain. This leads us to a question that I am very keen to ask. Uh, an individual memory may contain different elements, uh, such as explicit information, one or many context, and relevant emotions. When our brains reconstruct memories, the relevant emotions also come back to us. How does the brain store and retrieve emotions? And what I'm getting to is the concept of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Well, um... So every, every experience in, the human, in a human's life is stored in multiple systems. We now know that 
that there is no one memory system in the brain. There are many different systems. In fact, you could say that the entire brain is a, is a learning machine or a memory machine mm-hmm. because there's synaptic plasticity, which is the basis of memory, in neurons in every single part of the brain. There's no one brain area that learns and the other parts don't learn. Um, so every time you have an experience, every part of your brain that is engaged in that experience, whether it's the sensory parts of the brain, the motor parts that control your responses, the language parts that process the words that you're hearing or the words you're speaking, um, are the parts that are uh, adding the uh, arousal and other things we associate with emotion to it. All of those systems are learning and storing the information. Emotions are, in my opinion, not something we're born with um, in a prepackaged way. That, you know, when a child is um, um, injured in some experience and, let's say, uh, falls off of a bicycle or something, the parents said, oh, you... You must, uh, you must have been very afraid, or if the child almost got hit by a car or something, that must have been very scary for you. Or the child has to talk in front of the class, and the parent says, oh, that, that must have made you feel very anxious. So we learn what these words are that we use to identify our emotions, and then we um, uh, use those words to kind of uh, glue together a schema or a template in our brains uh, that that we uh, define that defines that emotion for us, and so part of that that schema that schema is a memory, and part of that memory is um, the, um, um, the 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 way that that experience felt. Right, so um, it's not just about um, um, the word itself, but also the memories you have about those experiences including the the way the experience kind of felt as an experience itself. So I think, you know, in in the English language, we have more than 36 words uh, related to fear and anxiety uh, that we use for different gradations, variations of it, and so forth. Like uh, This is from um, Isaac Marks, who is a very prominent um, psychiatrist in uh, London at the Institute of Psychiatry a number of years ago. Uh, his, his book on fears, phobias, and rituals is a classic in this field. And, you know, he talked about fear and anxiety, of course, but also trepidation, trepidation panic, uh, hesitation, fear, uh, sorry, uh, consternation, um, uh, pa- uh, horror, terror, and so forth. So, you know, on and on, there are like more than three dozen of these words related to fear and anxiety. So there is no one thing called fear. Fear is the conscious experience that we label, um, both as a big category, but we sometimes talk about specific feelings as well. It's just a very complicated topic, and the reason it's so complicated is because uh, each person um, sort of probably experiences and defines these things in their own unique way because they're part of their experience and what they've come to think of as fear and anxiety and so forth. So um, the, um, the way our brain stores information is very complicated. Um, but part of what it stores is the emotional experience itself um, that you have and associate with that word. So but if you're talking about fear, you have some sense of uh, what sort of situation fear will occur in, um, the kinds of stimuli that occur, um, the way you, uh, uh, the experiences you've had specifically, and the way it, it feels to you. 
brain and involves lots of different systems and lots of circuits and so forth. Uh, and I think probably every emotion will be like this, that it's stored in a very complex way throughout the brain. Um, and when we are nostalgic about something, when we're remembering all these complex components of it that are consciously accessible. It is amazing that how a bit of taste in your mouth or a fragrance in the air can trigger a process in the brain that reconstructs old memories. This is amazing. Well, the, it is. It is amazing. And the, uh, the way psychologists talk about this is in terms of semantic networks. So if you have a network, imagine that, that the way an emotional experience is stored in your brain as a, in terms of the conscious parts, because that's what you can consciously retrieve is only the parts that is stored consciously. But the, the, what the emotion is, is stored as a, a set of, um, um, let's say, different components of a memory implanted throughout the brain, and, but they're connected in a, in a network. And so activation of any one part of that network, network can uh, reactivate the whole network so that the taste reminded Proust not only of the, uh, the Madeline, but also the whole experience of the Madeline and that he was having. Now, we know that uh, there is no universally accepted definition uh, of consciousness. But if I invite you uh, to define human consciousness, uh, how would you start? Uh, how would you proceed? Consciousness is the, um, the awareness that your brain is in some state. So um, you can, there are, at any one moment, your brain is taking in tons and tons of sensory information from all sources, your eyes, your ears, your skin. You know, if you just like sit here and pay attention to your arm, all of a sudden you can probably, you know, feel sensations in your arm or your foot or any other part of your body um, just by having attended to it. So that, that means that those body parts had those sensations coming in, but you weren't consciously attending to it. So consciousness uh, direction of attention to some internal or external uh, event uh, that, al that allows that information to then rise into what we might call your mind's eye. And once it's there, it's, it's there for you to experience. Now, some philosophers talk about... Um, you know, that you need multiple levels of representation in order to have a conscious experience. So it's not enough for the stimulus to be in your brain. Uh, it, that information also has to be attended to. And in a sense, it's not enough for it simply to be attended to. In addition, you have to know that you're attending to it. So it's a kind of three-step process in that sense, that until you know you are attending to some stimulus that's in your brain, you're not conscious of it. And that's why, if that's correct, I mean, there's no proof that it is, but if that's correct, that's why it becomes very complicated to begin to talk about consciousness in animals because, you know, it's, it's easy to, to understand how they could have um, stimuli in their brain. We know they do because they can see the world and, and react to it. Um, and it's also easy to think that they might be able to uh, that, that we, we're certain that they can attend to information because, um, you know, they don't just respond to everything. They only respond to uh, what's important at the moment. But the question is, can
can they have that other position that that um, that stance where they are knowing that it's the stuff is happening to them and that's the complicated part that that additional step of knowing that it's you that's experiencing something in your brain and is this the concept of self that you discuss in your book uh, synaptic self well this is a um an aspect of what I described in synaptic self and synaptic self I said there's more to the self than meets the mind's eye so I think that what I wanted the point I wanted to make there was that um our self is is a complicated thing it has many conscious and unconscious aspects you know if we're talking about our personality most of our personality is stored in the brain unconsciously so we don't have to remember you know we don't have to explicitly remember who we are from day to day month to month and year to year but our conscious self is is something else uh, and that's what i'm talking about today is the, the conscious self what are major breakthroughs and developments that you envisage uh, in your area of research uh, in next 20 to 30 years well i i hope the the techniques uh, are available for us to learn more about um uh the details of the human brain um you know cuz obviously we have to do this in um through techniques that that allow people to uh allow scientists to see what's going on in the human brain but without actually going inside it and that's the the difficult part we we want to know what's going on but we also um can't really go into the brain and that's why the animal research is is so important but perhaps in the future the techniques will allow us to peer inside the operation of the brain more precisely professor joseph ledoux thank you very much for being with me it has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show